Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Girl Boss Radio from Panoply. I know it's been a couple weeks. I'm glad to be back, believe it or not. I have pneumonia. Uh, so it's been, uh, well, I mean, if you, some of you have followed the news, it's been a really wild month for me. It's been a wild year for me. Lots of change, but lots of really good things too. If you don't know who I am, I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder of Nasty Gal, the founder of Girl Boss, the author of Girl Boss, which was a New York Times bestseller, and the author of Nasty Galaxy, a book which uh, I released in October. Uh, that's super beautiful, and you can buy it anywhere books are sold. Uh, we just announced the Girl Boss Rally, which is an event with 500 women in attendance, over 50 speakers, and an incredibly packed day full of great advice, tips, and tricks, and stories from those of us who have been there and want to share our battle scars with you. I know I have plenty. You can find out more at girlboss.com rally. On this podcast, I interview a different woman every week, who's carved out a path for herself. We trace her from her first job to how she got to where she is today to extract advice for you, our listeners, who are doing the same with your lives. Today, we have not one, but two guests on Girl Boss Radio today. Yes, this is our first group interview. Carly Zakin and Daniel Weisberg, the co-founders of The Skim. Carly and Danielle met studying abroad together in college, and several years later, they both found themselves working both at NBC News. They became fast friends, roommates, and eventually co-founders. As roommates, the two discussed their shared passion for journalism and realized their accomplished friends on the go needed a quick, accessible summary of the news sent straight to their inbox. So they quit their jobs at NBC and began the skim. The company now has a circulation of over 4 million active readers around the country, including Oprah and Hoda. Carly and Danielle have been named Fortune's 40 Under 40, and they are both joining us from our studios in Brooklyn. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. This is very exciting. Yeah. And so, as you may know, I start this podcast with the same question every episode, which is, you know, where did you get your start? What was your first job? Yeah, so it's Danielle. I got my first job when I was... I, I had been a babysitter and like mother's helper growing up, but my first real job during the summer was uh, being an ice cream scooper at an Italian ice store in Chicago, uh, which I loved. And I worked there with a bunch of my friends and we just had a great time, even though it was kind of like totally run down and I had a really sketchy boss uh, who never wanted to pay us, but it was it was a really fun <laughs> summer job. Uh, and this is Carly. So my first job was actually for my mom. Um, my mom had her own business, and um, she is an event planner um, for non for profits. And I was like her her helper. Um, I my first job I was licking envel- envelopes. I was stamping things. I was running around and helping people mm-hmm. find their seats at events. Uh, and I was an auctioneer girl uh, at a very young age. And then I would say uh, when the nepotism ended, I then worked worked as a babysitter. Cool. And then you guys met in college, right? Um, so we actually met. Uh, we were in college age. But we didn't go to school together. So uh, we like to say we have the most glamorous startup beginnings because we met in Rome. <laughs> 
Uh, So we were both doing this um, study abroad program in Italy. Um, I went to Penn and Danielle went to Tufts and we signed up for the same random program. And, you know, we we became friendly and we we bonded over the fact that we were looking for the same kind of Roman delicacies and uh, of artichokes. Um, But we never, ever talked about work or previous internship experience or what we were majoring in. Um, We were having too much fun in Rome. I think one of the things that we both have in common um, is that we started working at a really young age. Like I think our parents were really uh, pushed us and we're happy that they did, which is, you know, always have internships, always have a side job, always be doing something. Um, not only to to have, you know, money, make your own money and feel, have that feeling at an early age, but to also just get different experiences and, you know, to know that I think by the time we were in college, we had both had, you know, professional internships. Um, and that's something that our families really fostered. That's so cool. And so you guys, it sounds like you guys had similar interests in terms of what you were studying or what you wanted to do. Um, and that was something that you found out once you once you met, what were those things? So we uh, we growth grew up lifelong news geeks. We both loved journalism. And I, I'd say when you boil it down, we both love storytelling. And I think we both have, you know, kind of these funny anecdotes of, um, you know, kind of whether we were on school papers or playing reporter or, you know, dreaming to be like Katie Couric or uh, Danielle dreamed of being, you know, a, a White House in-bed reporter. Um, we, we both just had this side of us that, you know, it's a weird thing to say, oh, my hobby is news, but it was, it is, it was. Um, and I think when you meet people who share that, you're on the same wavelength. And I think we were, um, it was great when we became friends and realized this this shared interest. It was like, oh my gosh, like you get it too. And, um, you know, it just, we're, we're the kind, you know, when there's breaking news, like you can't turn us away from the TV or you can't take us off our phones because we just can't soak it in fast enough. And so tell me about the skim and how it got started um, and how you guys came up with the idea. Yeah. So Carly and I, you know, obviously knew each other when um, we were in college in Rome. Uh, Then we went back to school and totally lost touch. And then we reconnected when we were both working for NBC News. Uh, So between the two of us, you know, we've worked in in pretty much all of their news divisions between D.C. and New York and New Jersey. And reconnected when we were in our early 20s and very much at the same point in life, which is we were ha- we were in the jobs that we had worked so hard to have. So we'd worked so hard to get our foot in the door, to be impressive, to get the attention of bosses, to move up the ladder. And then it was like, oh, we were there. And I think in a lot of ways we benefited from graduating college in 2008 when the job scene was horrible. Uh, meaning it was really hard to get a job. And we were lucky that we did, especially in the industries that we wanted to work in. But we were really cheap labor. So we got to to do things that normally it takes a longer time to do. Uh, but I think that they were, you know, there were layoffs left and right. So we got a lot of job experience really quickly, um, which was amazing, but then put us in the position when we were 25 and 26 of kind of being like, what next? Um, you know, we didn't necessarily see a path to upward mobility um, in the news scene because there was such kind of like this this long road you had to travel between being earlier in your career and then being stuck in the same position for like eight or nine years and then finally getting to do what you had always wanted to do. Um, 
if you actually get there. And it was really depressing. Um, it was depressing to see your bosses taking buyouts. It was depressing to see um, people that love the industry so much not knowing, you know, if their careers were going to exist in the same way. And so for us, we were looking at that um, while at the same time not being unhappy. Like we loved where we worked. We loved what we were doing every day. We just wanted to be able to keep doing it. Um, so that was, you know, the the conversations that we would have when we were, you know, in in our mid-20s living together in a really small apartment in the West Village. And we'd get home and the other one would be there, which I think is is probably the biggest reason why we ended up starting the skim. Because there wasn't an escape. It wasn't like we could just be like, oh, we're feeling we all were, of we this. We were basically haunting each other. Yeah. <laughs> what you say. Um, and if you look at our, you know, our shared um, bookshelf at the time, it was, um, you know, how to take the GRE, how to take an LSAT, and then the secret. Um, and we only read the secret. So it was very much like we were at the point where we knew we wanted to do something else. And we had another version of, of ourselves kind of staring back and saying like, well, when when are we ever going to do this? Um, and it's funny because we always had this idea, um, this idea kind of in the back of our heads. And we never really talked about it. But when we finally did, we were on the exact same page with what the skim should be and how it should sound. Cool. And what is the idea? I mean, I'm a subscriber. I know what it is. But for our listeners, what is the skim? Uh, yeah. So the skim, first of all, thank you for subscribing. But the skim is a company that makes it easier to be smarter. So the skim makes it easier to be smarter through the routines of our audience. Um, we go after female millennials, but we're, we're happy uh, that we're a source for, for many more than that. And, you know, our signature product uh, started as the daily skim email. Um, that is really the first way that when, when you wake up, you roll over, turn your alarm off and check email. And it sounds like your best friend sitting next to you telling you everything you need to know. And since that kind of inaugural product, we've launched um, really a suite of products that that have premium elements and subscription elements, but that fit into other routines. So our, our latest subscription product is called Skim Ahead. And uh, for $2.99 a month, you will never uh, never have to wonder when when is my favorite show coming back on or what is that football game everyone's freaking out about or what time is the State of the Union? Um, so really, it's a service about anticipation. And so you mentioned this voice, this best friend, you know, this best friend element of waking up and, you know, hearing about what's going on in the world in a voice that's totally understandable, approachable, really humorous. I think it's so nice that you guys make make the news digestible for your readers. Where did, where did that idea come from and, and whose voice is it? I'm so curious. So the idea came from our friends. Um, you know, we saw that there was a disconnect between our friends. Um, we would ask them to watch what we produce for a living and they would always have some excuse why they didn't. Um, and it kind of, you know, it annoyed us. Um, but we saw that this is, you know, our friends are indicative of the female millennial. We all know the stats about them. They're a very powerful demographic and we're part of it. And we saw firsthand that the ways that people had been trying to reach this audience with news didn't really make sense. They don't own TVs. They're not necessarily home at 6.30 or waking up at 7 to 7.15 to get their information. So we looked at what actually would be helpful to our friends. How would they get this information in what is you know now a, a life when you grab your phone and you run out the door in the morning? Um, so that's exactly the routine that we wanted to fit in. And, and that's why we started 
with email. And the voice is made to sound like uh, someone that you don't mind hearing from in the morning that always makes you laugh, um, but I think most importantly is someone that you trust. And we looked at, you know, the idea when we started the company that anchors were such a great, you know, means of that trusted voice for so long. And just because the medium had changed didn't mean that that idea of getting news and information from someone that you trusted had to change. We just created it in the form of our skim girl personality, our caricature. Um, and that's who's speaking. It's not my voice. It's not Carly's voice. It's the voice that we created. Cool. And so how do you scale that voice? Like, you know, it's someone is someone has to take that on. It's very specific, you know, just as I've, you know, created a brand with Nasty Gal and, you know, we publish a little bit of content on girlboss.com, just getting people to rally around, you know, what is the creative of this brand and how do we ensure that as we grow, it stays consistent? How do you guys do that? So that was actually the first thing that we ever had to prove. Um, when we took, I think the hardest thing we've ever done as a company is to raise money. And then the first, so when we did that, the, the first thing we had to prove was that this was a scalable product. Um, so for us, you know, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of, and I think, you know, in hindsight, is probably the smartest thing we ever did was um, in year one, when we were literally at home um, on our couch in our tiny apartment, we got an intern. And um, it's funny, everyone always laughs when we say it was a 19-year-old college student, a 19-year-old boy. And most people were like, wait, it was a guy in your little apartment. And we're like, yeah, but it was fine. And he, this, this kid came to us and he said, I really want to get journalism uh, internships, but I can't without journalism experience. And I can't get the experience if I can't get the internship. So we said, OK, you can be our intern. And he um, every day sat on the couch and watched us skim. And he, we asked him to basically keep, almost keep a, a, a study guide to us. And what we, the purpose of that was, I think, you know, it's very hard to um, identify your own habits or when you're, you know, if you, like good friends always have shorthand or inside jokes that you don't, that no one else understands and you wouldn't even think to explain it. And we basically had him create a study of our humor, of the way we speak, of um, what the what the voice of the skim was. And it became the foundation to what we call kind of the skim Bible that is really um, a recipe of how we thought about developing the voice. And, you know, since then, we um, have obviously scaled a team. Our team is 38 people now, but we have a very, very small editorial team within that group. And um, you know, we've really worked. Anyone we bring on goes through what we call skim boot camp. Um, but we we were able to prove very, very early on that we were able to scale our voice. And so venture capital, you mentioned venture capital. And, you know, that's something that uh, is is such a wild, wild frontier yeah. if, if you've yes. never done it before. <laughs> Um, why why did you guys decide to raise venture capital and what was that like entering that world and having this first conversation? We didn't have a choice not to raise venture capital, um, which is now something that we, we actually talk about a lot, which is there are a lot of different funding choices. And I feel like in today's kind of media and VC and tech landscape where you see all these hot startups, I feel like it's really easy for people to think that going down the venture route is the only route available for funding. Um, for us, we had to bring in money because we didn't have any. We started the company with about $3,500 between the two of us. And there's no way that we could have had second 
jobs or even third jobs to be able to to take it on um, between writing and trying to get the business side up. So we really had to. But to get there, we also spent about a year and change proving the concept. Mm-hmm. So that the first year was all bootstrapped? Yeah. I mean, I would say bootstrapped in the sense that we agreed to go in credit card debt. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so our credit cards felt bootstrapped. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we were making um, very mid-level salaries um, at, uh, you know, in our previous jobs. And we had just a few thousand dollars in savings between the two of us and really agreed to to to, um, to take on credit card debt together, which, um, you know, we've talked, we've talked about before, but I, I think um, I don't think people realize that we did that to, to start this. Um, and then, you know, in the first um, really very few months of us starting the skim, we were really able to, I would say, multiply and expand our network very quickly. And we were able to take in a, a small amount of angel investment um, that w- the purpose of it was for us to start hiring a team and to get a, you know, a freelance web developer and designer. Um, I think it's funny, we were so terrified to spend that money that, um, the a year to the date that we started taking in that money, we had over half of it left um, because we were terrified that we were going to spend it and we would have nothing. Um, so yeah, we we definitely was a scrappy, very very scrappy beginning for us. Yeah, absolutely. And what were the indicators that the the scam was a you know a good idea and a thing worth worth going into credit card debt for? Because I think so many people have ideas that they're really committed to and they're willing to you know p- take out a second mortgage on their home for. And um, some people don't have you know those indications that their idea is actually a great one. And you know, obviously, you guys were onto something. What was it that um, that you were seeing in like your you know, engagement or otherwise that said like, oh my gosh, we we have to keep doing this? So I think it was a few things. I think the first thing was just user acquisition. Um, so that, you know, first, the first few years of our company, the only way that we got people to sign up was really through word of mouth um, and, and through press, which we got through word of mouth. Um, so seeing people sign up and seeing the kind of traction that we got all organically that first year, that was something that we felt like you just couldn't argue with. Like there had never been a newsletter property out there that had seen that that amount of people sign up with the kind of engagement and open rate that we had. I remember, you know, the first like month of our company, we had like a 95% open rate and we didn't know how to how to put that into context. Um and we were so mad that like 5% of people weren't opening it. We thought it was like really bad, which um, is ridiculous because like industry average is 12%. Um, but for us, we we didn't know. We came in knowing that we could write, knowing that we knew the audience, and I think having a natural confidence that we could understand the branding side and marketing. And that was it. So we knew nothing about the business side and the tech side. Um, but I think knowing that about ourselves and seeing the kind of traction that we did, we knew we were on to something. The second thing was the community that formed around us. And that has been the biggest force um, in our success as a company. We have over 16,000 brand reps today. They are our skimbassadors. They're our 1%. They are amazing cheerleaders, focus groups, um, our biggest critics for our brand. Um, And they're incentivized in in a lot of different ways today. And we have a whole program that's built out for them. But back then, they were just people that were writing in and saying, I really like what you do. And I'd love to get more involved. Um, and I think on our on our days when we thought this was crazy 
and it seemed like everything was going wrong, we would read their emails and that made such a difference for us. Um, And I think the last thing was just our mentality. You know, when you start something and you have nothing to lose, and again, we were 25 and 26, we didn't have families. You know, our parents gave us hugs. Carly's family cooked us dinner because they're in New York. Um, But we we had no fallback plan. And we also didn't have responsibilities like a family or a mortgage. So it was very different. Um, But I think for us, it was just, we're going to do this and we're going to make it a success because we don't have any other option. Um, And that's still very much how we think about our company. Yeah. So how do you engage the Skimbassadors? You know, how do you guys talk to them outside of the daily newsletters and through Skim Ahead? You know, what is it that they actually do to help to help you? How do you engage with them? We talk to them all day long. Um, so we, we engage with them in in a few different ways. Um, one is that anytime we have a job opening at the Skim, they're the first people we tell. So actually, four of our employees currently at Skim headquarters started as a Skim ambassador. The second is that we're we're in Facebook groups with them all day long. Literally, I'm sitting here just looking at my phone, and um, there's a chat right now about a pair of shoes that I recommended, and now there's people are asking, you know, what kind of color I wanted or what kind of color they should get. Down to people want career advice. Down to people are talking about um, one of our ambassadors has a, a baby girl that um, has a real health scare, and people are literally coming together and figuring out how to help her both keep her job and also help her. Um, like keep her house functioning. And so it's an incredible community of um, like-minded people that really embody what we call the skim life. And I think, you know, they're incentivized in different ways. Um, you know, so down, as Danielle mentioned, like the the swag and the brand elements that we love sharing. But I think there's a much deeper community that has been created that I honestly don't think we ever could have designed. I think it really happened by chance. Um, and we really just worked to kind of foster it. But um, it's, it's just an extension of our, our headquarters in New York. So how long has it been since you guys founded the scam and and how has your team grown and what is the kind of breakout of is it a lot of technology people is it writer i mean it sounds like it's not writers and what's it like you know running going from an apartment to you know having 38 people looking at you saying like hey boss like what <laughs> what now it's crazy it's weird yeah <laughs> Every day we think that the elevators in our newest office open into the floor and every day I get off and I'm like, oh, my God, who why is all this furniture here and who works here? Um, It doesn't get old. (laughs) Um, No, I think, you know, we just had our holiday party uh, in the last few weeks and it was um, it's crazy looking around and and just being like, oh, my God, like we have doubled this year, tripled from the year before. And and uh, I think one of the things that we're most proud of is is our team and who, you know, people, when you interview people, they ask about what's, what is the culture like. Um, company culture is the most important thing to us. And I would say um, our team is based around hustle and our team, um, I think, all has a sense of humor. And I think our team works really hard, but also knows that we're not saving lives and that we can take a, a few minutes to celebrate. Um, I think that, you know, of the 38 people we have, um, the majority really are split among tech analytics and sales. Um, and, you know, one of the shifts that we've really made in the last few months is really being um, an analytics and tech first company. And, and you know, we're a company that not only makes it easier to be smarter, 
for this audience, but we we do that by fitting into their routines and by being really the source of all things around this demographic. And it largely comes from us being a part of that demographic. But um, it's a really exciting time for us to to really um, be building the foundation around this business. And you said sales. So, I mean, you guys don't have ads on in your newsletter and otherwise. So how does how, I mean, are you thinking about an ad model? Is there one or is it just very like subtle? I'm so curious. <laughs> yes, so we do, we do. Um, we work with sponsors. It's a native ad model. Um, so we really weave them into the newsletter. Um, today, our, our sponsor was Buick. Buick's been a, a great sponsor for us for the past few years. So is Chase. Um, and I think, you know, we work with a lot of different brands across different categories. But our favorite campaigns are the ones where we're telling the story of a brand. And we turn down about 60 to 70 percent of the incoming business that we get because we want to work with brands that we feel like we can tell their story. Um, so we develop or we use inventory that our audience knows isn't the news of the day. Uh, it's not confused with you know what's going on in the world, but it's different units. It's our logo. It's our social channels. It's our skimbassadors. It's things like we created along with Chase um, a get off the couch competition that um, really gives access and, and highlights small business owners in our skimbassador community um, and culminates at like a Shark Tank-like competition, which we've done for a few years and we absolutely love. Um, so we really think about the fact that um, a lot of brands out there want to reach this audience of engaged female millennials. Um, and our job is to make sure that we pick the ones that we like, we trust, and that we want to make sure um, treat this audience and, and think about them, think about how to reach them thoughtfully. Um, and so we tell those stories to our audience. Um, and so we've been doing that. And we also introduced um, our subscription model this year uh, with Skim Ahead, our app. Um, so we have uh, a definitely a diversified revenue stream, which I think was really important to us and was always saw it was always how we saw the company evolving. Oh, I'm just looking at your newsletters. I guess somehow, you know, because it's your newsletter is so simple, the ad isn't isn't like in your face. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, oh, Dunkin' Donuts. You know, yeah, we, you know, we work with brands that are actually authentic to the company and that we use and like. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think so many people have the exact same reaction you do, which is like, wait, you don't have ads. But I mean, I, I when I think about this game, I think of Dunkin' Donuts or whomever it is that we're working with. Um, so that's part mm -hmm. of the storytelling aspect that, you know, we love doing. And I know that's what brands love working, love about working with us. Yeah. So, do you guys consider yourself a media company? We consider ourselves an audience company, um, and that was a term we came up with when we were fundraising um, because I think, you know, when you fundraise, everyone wants to put you in a box. Well, I only invest in media companies or I don't invest in media companies or I only invest in tech companies and I hate content companies. So we were kind of at a loss as to what we really were. And when we thought about it, we're a company that is focused on its audience and we create products that make it easier for that specific audience to be smarter. We're so happy that in doing that, we reach a lot of people because the idea of making it easier to be smarter is something that a lot of people can appreciate. But when we go back to how we started the company, those two founding principles of having a voice and being obsessed with the routines of its audience, those really relate to um, the fact that every product roadmap that we have revolves around um, these women and how can we integrate into what they're already doing during their day to help them get a leg up on the world. 
Gosh, how do you guys work together? I mean, co-founders. <laughs> I've always, you know, I hear I hear nightmare stories about having co-founders and I hear that it's the best thing ever and I see, you know, I mean, you guys do all your interviews together, which I think is really interesting, but I've watched the Warby Parker guys, one's at home running the show and the other one's at a conference, you know, evangelizing the brand, which when you're a solo founder seems like such a perfect way <laughs> to run things. Yeah. Um, how has it been working so closely, you know, uh, you know, together as co-founders? you know, over the years? Yeah, well, I think um, we definitely don't have that model where one of us is like, you know, the face of the brand and out at the conferences and the others running the day-to-day. Um, that that's not, that, that just is never something that we entertained. We have a very unique partnership that I think people are always interested in because we truly are equal in every way you could be equal in this. And it's the foundation to the company. It's the foundation to how we agree allowed to let our investors work with us um, and to build our board around. And um, I think what's interesting is that we started this company with very different skill, with very similar skill sets, nearly identical skill sets. It wasn't like one of us was the technical one and one of us was the creative. Um, I think what's happened over time is we definitely have different strengths um, or or management styles that we can turn on and off. But we really, um, I think that the key for us is that we have the same goals and we know what we're working backwards from and that keeps us focused. So we divide and conquer as needed. But part of, you know, our job as CEOs is not only being two steps ahead of for the company, but also protecting the company and being brand protectors. And part of that protection is making sure that our relationship is strong and that um, we're dividing and conquering in a way that makes sense for us. Amazing. Um, have there been difficult moments? I think, you know, it's funny. We were talking about this the other day that our friends, you know, our friends have become friends with each other. And uh, we still get asked the question all the time, like, so, you know, do you guys really get along? Like, really? And we're like, yes. <laughs> you know, we were, I think, um, the basis to how we started the company is that we were friends first, and then we were roommates, and then we were business partners. You know, our parents met. Our, um, our, we've had holidays together. We went into this thinking about it like a marriage, and it wasn't something that just happened overnight. And it wasn't like we met and moved in together and started a company the next day. It's been years and years in the making. And I think that there's definitely difficult moments. I think no matter who you're spending time with, you know, there are points when you get frustrated, but there has never been anything, nor, you know, do I foresee anything that would cause us to put something personal or put a rift between us um, that was so big that we lost sight of what we were building together. I think we went into it with the same goals. We went into it with really similar skill sets, and we went into it knowing what we wanted out of it, and that the way to get there was to put our personal friendship and and relationship um, first in some ways, which goes back to why we do press together, because we think about ourselves as equals and we never want to let something kind of get in that way. Um, and these things all seem like very, you know, menial at the time and like they don't matter. But I think we learned from a lot of other founders that had come before us. And just like you said, we've heard all the horror stories. So we're really proactive about protecting each other and making sure that anything that could be a roadblock um, we just don't have time to let it be a distraction. Totally. So how do you guys run the editorial piece? I mean, it's like you guys send an email at three in the morning about <laughs> news that's probably just broken. Do you have a team that like is awake in the middle of the night? And, you know, what is the cadence of, of your meetings for, you know, editorial? It just seems like you're running a newsroom. 
Yeah, that I mean, so hard. So, so part of, you know, we should go back to how we started this in the training that we came into this with, which is that we started at NBC News. Um, so our our background, you know, was in traditional news and we run our pitch meetings exactly how we were taught to run them, um, you know, back in our old jobs. Someone is always updating um, the newsletter. It used to just be we were the only ones who were sleeping in shifts. Uh, thankfully, we have support now in that. Um, but I think for us, you know, one of the tenets of the skim is that we are not breaking news. We do not have to be first. We have to be right. So there are countless mornings where there could be stuff that we we sh- maybe could be adding, you know, um, whether it's at 545 our time, 245 your time. But we it's a you know, we have a drop dead deadline at 558 a.m. is the last edit is made. And um, we need to make sure that the information is right, not just that we're first. And do you guys personally review every email before it goes out? We see we touch every word of the skim. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I'm so curious, like, I mean, five something in the morning, <laughs> what time do you guys get to the office? What is your routine? I think, you know, we don't necessarily have one. I think, you know, I'm sure you get this. It changes every day. Um, every day we're doing different things and wearing different hats. Um, we try to to start our days with having um a breakfast meeting, which is something that we I think networking was really hard for us to work into our day because we were so focused. So building in things like having breakfast with someone and then heading into the office after spending the bulk of our day in our office. Um, And then we'll both do separate drinks or meetings outside of the office. Um, One thing that we both try to make time for is working out, which is actually relatively new uh, for both of us um, because mm-hmm. the first uh, six months of our company, we were so unhealthy and we did not sleep and we ate so poorly. Um, and it took us a while to get into a routine where, um, you know, we we realized we had a problem. We realized that for the company to run and to be a success, we had to be alive. But from realizing that to actually developing a schedule that lets us sleep and lets us um, work out and have some sort of life. Um, there were a couple years in between, and I think now we're at uh, you know a relatively good place, which really depends on us being really rigid on how we spend our time every day. Do you exercise together? Um, we no. play tennis. Oh yeah, we play tennis. Yes. I forgot. We do. We That's just cool. haven't been in a little <laughs> while. But it's not like okay, four p.m. time to go get on the treadmill together. No, no. no. We have different okay. workout styles, but yeah, tennis has been good. Um, that it's was therapeutic fun. to like hit something together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I love throwing those balls at the ground. Have you ever done that with those like really heavy yes, balls? Yes, when the you gym? slam it down oh. with both hands, that yes. feels so good. Yes, <laughs> that's the best. It's the best feeling. Um, what would you say your proudest moment is or has been? Um, the election. Yeah. I think our, our No Excuses campaign, we got over 110,000 people registered to vote, uh, which was just, I think it was amazing for us as a company. We were one of Rock the Vote's biggest partners ever. And it just felt really good. Um, and I think everyone on our team was really into it and it became a whole company effort. And what would you say your biggest failure has been or your biggest learning opportunity? I think our biggest learning opportunity is management. We never had management experience before the skim. Um, so learning how to do that at scale, it's something that we're very transparent with our employees that like bear with us. We're learning as we go. I think we've 
I hope that they would say that we've come a very long way. <laughs> uh, but I think we have come a long way. Um, I think in terms of a, a failure, um, we definitely have had management failures. We've definitely made mistakes in negotiations and dealing with partners. And, you know, I think fundraising was, you know, in the beginning for us was one failure after another. Um, we had no idea what we were doing, which is why in the very beginning we got a ton of no's. And I think, you know, second to the election, probably what we're most proud of is the fact that we've done now three fundraises um, that we've we've done together. And as a company, I've raised over $15 million. And um, I never forget that. Like, I think that is something that, you know, it's very easy to to kind of get, I would say, desensitized to all the tech press that everyone reads about and fancy valuations and big numbers. And um, at the end of the day, like we, you know, two people with zero business background who literally cannot use Excel, like we raised a lot of money and we did it from real investors who turned down and, and have their pick of who they want to work with. And um, I think we're really, really proud that we were able to do that on our own. And what do you attribute that yes to, turning that no into a yes? Um, um, what did I that think, take? I think two things. I think one, when investors invest in you, they, they invest in the team. And I think that um, our passion and like our partnership is so solid that it's like very humbling that people invested in the two of us. I think the second thing, and you know, that was in the beginning. I think the second thing is that it, it's the what we've built, um, the community that we've tapped into and learned how to activate is who, as you know, like everyone's trying to reach, and very few people have been able to do it. And you're definitely one of them. And and I think that investors have have tapped into that and and believed in that we we are really setting the stage of what membership means. I think it was also about finding the right people. Um, we're kind of lucky that in the beginning we talked to so many people who said no, that we got a really good feel for who is out there and different investment styles. Um, and I think we've always trended towards people that really understood the company that we are building and our vision um, and who wanted to be a part of it for the right reasons and not because we were necessarily hot at the time. So many times when we've gone into fundraise, we have been the exact opposite of what the startup trends are. Hmm. That's interesting. In what way? Um, like, well, I think when we first started, um, all we heard was content is dead. Email is dead. Build an app. People will come. Um, and that was just never how we thought. You know, we thought about it as what are actually what are people actually using and how can we fit into that? And, you know, email is our first stop and it's not the whole company, but it is a great tool to use. And it's a human. Like it's a huge marketing opportunity if we could do it right. Um, and I think people heard what they wanted to hear and, you know, had their own biases and really believed the trends at the time. Um, and I think, you know, we were able to eventually just put our heads down and focus and build and do our own thing. And the people that believed in us back then uh, will always remember who they are. Um, and that's something that you know, we think about every day and every time we go into a negotiation or, or a fundraise. Yeah, there's a there's a ride or die kind of uh, relationship you have to have with an investor. And it's so fascinating how what's cool changes and those people totally change their minds. I mean, there was when I was raising money for for Nasty Gal the first time, everyone was like, fab.com, uh, not everyone, <laughs> yeah. excuse me, Fab Fab's investors were like, you need to be doing what they're doing. They're yeah. a mm -hmm. picture of success. And while Nasty Gal has like stumbled along the way, like we're still here, you know, and, you know, Fab is is kind of like a, a story of, yeah. of like a unicorn that, you know, lost its horn or whatever. But um, 
<laughs> you know, the way companies are valued changes, what's cool changes, what people think the future looks like changes, and the industry changes. And so, yeah, I mean, having having money for a rainy day and also having people who are willing to continue to fund you through those late rainy days because they believe in you is such, so, so important. And who believe in what you're doing, you know, because – not because it's cool, but because – they understand it mm-hmm. and, they, and they believe in you, you know? Yeah. All right. So this is, you know, I kind of start the every episode with the same question and I end I end with a, the same question. It's a different question. But I ask everyone, um, you know, what your girl boss moment was. And so a girl boss moment is just a time in your week where you felt like you're in control of your life because even when we do work for ourselves, we can find our, our lives run by our calendar um, and and run by the commitments that we've made. When in the last week would you say, you know, what was your girl boss moment? We talked about this on the way over. So we we came prepared and we uh, we had the same one, <laughs> cool. which is last week we took uh, we took a lot of time and carved carved out time in advance of not only our calendars, but our entire team's calendar to do something that we call Skim Academy. And we do it about twice a year, which is a really deep dive into the vision of the company, where we're going, where we've been. Um, and also a, a lot of bonding and culture exercises to make sure that the team trusts each other and knows each other. Yeah, and I think we identify that as our girl boss moment because um, going back to a question you asked earlier, what's been you know hardest for us? I think you know it is managing, and our biggest fear, you know, when people ask us like what keeps you up at night, it's like that our culture changes and that as we scale the team, like what makes the skim the skim would shift. So we're really obsessive about staying in control of that and making sure that every single person in our team really identifies as a culture carrier and has that sense of responsibility and sense of mission. Um, So we are really proud with how Skim Academy went last week and, um, you know, that we are continuing to take the time to to make that a cornerstone of the company. That's amazing. You know, it's like because, you know, when you have 20, 30, 40, 50 people, you know, it's still a size where you can you know, you guys can all take over a bowling alley together. You can like, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's not, it's be, it's still, it's bewildering when it happens really fast, but still it's a great, you know, it's a size where you could assume that everybody understands the culture. Yeah. You yeah. could assume, except exactly. you can't, you can't assume that. And so to do that very early, I think is a really smart thing and something I wish I had done with Nasty Gal. So kudos to you guys. Thank That's you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Where can our listeners find the skim? So you can go to theskim.com, two M's. You can also go to the app store and download the skim, two M's. And for 30 days free, you can try out Skim Ahead. Um, and hopefully you will like it enough to pay $2.99 a month for it. I do. And Thank I like you. it. And my calendar, my calendar is full with all the things that I need to talk about to oh, sound good. informed. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much. Cool. And now for some girl boss moments. Girl boss moments are a time in your week when you felt like you were in control of your life. We're still not sure if any of us are, but hey, that's not the point. That could mean getting home for the holidays, having a great year-end review, or saving money for retirement. Whatever it is to you, you can send in your hashtag girl boss moment at hashtag girl boss moment via Twitter or Instagram. We find them. I read them on this podcast, and then we pick our favorite each week and go into greater detail with you, interviewing you on girlboss.com. So let's get started. Uh, Kaylin R. Adkins says, when you can't find wedding invitations to suit your needs and overall theme slash style and make them your own. Man, join the club. What is with like the cheesy shit that's out there? 
Um, there's nothing. Actually, I got mine on Moo.com, who should be a sponsor of this show, but they're not. Um, and they had some really cool ones. Katie at Katie Lilybeth says, I landed two freelance jobs and my short story is going to be published in a new literary journal. That's amazing. I want to hear. I want to read it. I want to read it. Emily Moore at Emily Amanda Moore says, got my second raise and first bonus in four months at my new job. Feeling so proud of myself and even more motivated. Amazing. I want to make a company like the one you're working at. Um, Ashley Farnsworth at Blossom A19 says, my girl boss moment of the week was finishing the Seattle Marathon 12 minutes faster than my last marathon. Jesus Christ. I mean, I can hardly walk a mile. That's amazing. Kayla M at Kayla Riz being able to give back to and treat my parents and also being able to treat myself shopping. Pamela Wheaton at Heartbreak BTQ radio interview and a workout in before 7 a.m. I'd say that's a girl boss moment. Jesus Christ. I'm just trying to podcast from bed, guys. Taylor Swope at Taylor Swope Art says, after 14 years running an e-commerce site, ShipStation has changed my life. That's amazing. Yeah, they've been such a great supporter of this podcast. And so many of you have tweeted at me saying that you started working with ShipStation and are super pleased. Oh my God, what is my girl boss moment? Well, let's see. I've been sick since before Thanksgiving, which is why I've missed a couple weeks of this podcast, which is devastating because I enjoy it so much. And now I have pneumonia. So even though I didn't make it to my podcasts, I kept working from bed. I kept doing other stuff. Basically what I'm doing right now, I'm recording this portion of our podcast from bed. My girl boss moment is just getting knocked on my ass. This whole year's really knocked me on my ass. I got a divorce and my company went bankrupt. So um, let's see. My girl boss moment is just like <laughs> trying to jump up instantly after... Something like the those things happen to you and just running at top speed into a future as inspired or more inspired than I ever have been. And that's what I've been doing. Yeah, no no rest for the wicked until until pneumonia knocks you on your ass. So I would say that's my girl boss moment. Anyway, um, I really want to get to our 1-800, well, it's actually 1-844-GIRLBOSS um, hotline. The questions you guys have been sending in have been amazing, and I'm going to be answering them every week. This week, I have to take a break because literally every word that comes out of my mouth hurts my skull. So, um, all right, you guys, that was another episode of Girl Boss Radio. We'll be back next week, so please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thanks also to Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girl Boss. You can read the book, which you probably should do if you're listening to this podcast. You can buy, buy Girl Boss anywhere books are sold. And you can learn more about the Girl Boss Rally coming March 4th of 2017 at girlboss.com slash rally. And, you know, if you can spell my last name. You can find me pretty much anywhere social media is found. I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you to achieve your goals or at the very least provides some amount of inspiration for you. So please help us achieve our goals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share your love on social media. It helps others find the podcast and it helps us keep doing this and please our advertisers. Thank you also to the band Phases for our theme song. I'm Sophia Amoruso. I'll talk to you next week. Girl Boss.